I know this is something that I've said before, and I'll probably say it again many, 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 many times. Hopefully, I'll say it enough that it ends up sticking. But one of the most powerful things I ever heard was a statement on a song when I was in junior high where Brennan Manning says, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyles. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. And I say that because that's kind of the overarching idea that I want us to hear this morning. I want us to start with that idea in our mind that the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyles. Because I think, really, when we look at Colossians, Paul has addressed this idea indirectly throughout the whole book. He's been building up to it. He's been hinting at it and kind of pointing at it a little bit. In Colossians, just a reminder, it starts with a lot of theology. Colossians 1 and 2, it's not void of any application, but there is a lot of theology But the purpose is, then in Colossians 3, he says, because of what Christ has done for you that he lays out in chapters 1 and 2, this is how you are to live. And that's what he unpacks in Colossians 3. He starts by saying, these are traits of the sinful nature that you have put to death when you were buried with him in baptism and you died to your old self. So put these traits to death. And since when you were raised from baptism, you were raised to new life, put on these traits. And then he looks at how that looks in the, the life of a Christian, in the home life, and in the work life, in the social environment. All of those theological beliefs have implications because what we believe affects the way we live. Our beliefs determine our actions. No matter how much we want to say, it doesn't really matter what I believe, just tell me something that I can apply, our beliefs determine our actions. For example, if you believe you have a gas leak in your kitchen and that your kitchen is full of gas, you are not going to turn on your stove if you have any common sense because you believe that to be true and you know that if you do that, your house will blow up. Or you're at the camp. We're entering camp season at Hanging Rock for the summer. They have a really nice zip line. You believe that the harness is safe and secure, so you ride the zip line. But if you were questioning the integrity of that rope or that harness, you probably wouldn't go down through that ravine on a piece of rope that you didn't trust because you didn't believe that it could hold you. Our beliefs determine our actions. And so what we believe about Jesus very much matters. It matters that we put some effort in to understanding what Christ has done because it determines the way we live. This morning we're turning to what Paul has to say about evangelism. We're in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. It's page 895 in the Pew Bibles. If you see on the back of the bulletin, it's a really boring title, Paul's Evangelism Strategy. I was lacking some creativity when I was trying to figure that out. 
But at the same time, I really think it's kind of what he presents. And we live in this time where we're always seeing blog posts and articles or books or whatever it is that you read, magazine articles about the best way to evangelize and reach people and the new and improved way to evangelize. And there's methods like tent meetings or crusades where you fill stadiums full of thousands of tens of thousands of people and get many of them to come down and say a prayer and get dunked or whatever and then they've left as Christians and we've evangelized them. Or maybe it's a different style of worship service or quit stepping on people's toes and just make everything pleasing to hear and then everybody will want to come and we'll have churches that are full of people that claim to be Christians but don't live like it. There's all these new strategies that are always turning up and they pass away with fads. And I'm not saying that anything is wrong inherently in those or that it's wrong to look at new ways to reach people. If I believed that, we, I wouldn't promote and encourage and really put a lot of energy into the at-the-park service. But I think meeting people where they, at is a, is a, where they are at, let me talk correctly here, is a good way to try to reach them rather than saying, hey, come to this place that you are really uncomfortable with so that we can maybe try to tell you about something that you don't necessarily care about. However, whatever cultural methods we use, whether it be tent meetings or crusades or going to the park or having a rock and roll worship service, I think that Paul gives fundamental necessities to any of those strategies. And so that's where we pick up in verse 2 of Colossians 4. Would you read with me? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I, as I read through this and was outlining through Colossians, I read that I thought, Paul is talking about evangelism here. This is how we are to reach people and to share the gospel with people. I, I personally... A confession, I am not personally a fan of invite a friend to church to try to get the gospel to them. That, that doesn't, I don't see that in Scripture as the way we reach people with the gospel. What I see in Scripture is that the church is the place that we edify each other and we educate each other and we learn what we believe and we learn how to live so that we can go into the world and make disciples, not ask the world to come to us in order to make disciples. But that being said, if I were to summarize this passage in one phrase, it would be this, Jesus-centered evangelism makes the most of every opportunity. Which comes from verse 5. However, you'll notice that that's not what verse 5 says in the ESV. It says, making the best use of time. I would say that that phrasing is probably influenced by my study of the New Living Translation and the New International Version through the years because they both translate that making the most of every opportunity. The King James says, redeeming the time. But we, we use our time effectively in order to share the gospel. 
And Paul, I think, really unpacks how to do that. First, he says we do it steadfastly in prayer in verse 2. And he elaborates on what that means, but he says to be watchful in thanksgiving. And I can't help but think back to Colossians 1. Because what N.T. Wright points out and what many others point out is that what we see in these few verses is really Paul bringing everything together. A lot of what he says here goes back to what he says in chapter 1. But if you remember verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, Paul says to them, we always thank God for you whenever we pray for you because of the hope that you have, because of your faith in Christ and your love for the saints. For the saints. <clears throat> they are thankful for these Christians. And then he goes on to pray for them, the prayer that we read this morning in verses 9 through 12. I can't help but wonder how often we find ourselves praying for and thankfulness for other congregations that are around. He also instructs them to pray that God would open a door, at least for him and his co-workers. But if you understand the gospel and what Paul's theology is, he believes that all people, all Christians, are ministers. And really, we should be praying that all of us have a door open for us to present the gospel to those that we know and those that we interact with. And that it would be communicated clearly. Verses 3 and 4, pray that the door would be open for us and that we would know how we ought to answer and what we ought to say and to speak as we should clearly. Steadfast prayer enables us to make the most of every opportunity. Because sometimes it lays the foundation. I think of one of the professors I had at Lincoln who grew up in a bar. His mom worked in the bar. He lived in the bar. If I remember correctly, his parents may have owned the bar. And every day on his way to school, there was a Christian couple that would pray for him as he walked past their house. Every year, every day, as he walked past their house, they would pray that somehow somebody would have the opportunity to share the gospel with him and to break the cycle that was in his family. Sometimes it lays the foundation in the person's life, and sometimes it changes our hearts that we would be brokenhearted to want to share the gospel with them. It's hard to want people to not receive the love of God when we're praying for them. But we all have those people, kind of like Jonah with Nineveh, that we really deeply, if we were completely honest and transparent, we would say, we don't want to go preach to them because they might repent. And we know that if they repent, God is faithful and just and he'll forgive them. And quite frankly, we would rather see them in hell than in heaven. But when you begin to pray for those people steadfastly, continuously, it changes your heart and you begin to see them the way that God sees them. Sometimes it just gives us the strength and courage and we could go on and on and on about the ways in which that prayer enables us to make the most of every opportunity. Then he says to walk in wisdom toward outsiders. And again, we see this going back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, where he says, we pray for you. Ever since we've heard, we have not stopped praying for you, asking that you'd be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding in order that you walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. See, Paul identifies in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1 that what we believe changes the way we live. Walking comes with understanding. 
if you really want to know what you believe, and whenever I ask people what they believe, I ask it two different ways. One, I say, what is it that you believe? Because we will stand up. We know the right answers. I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and he is my Lord and Savior, and I'm supposed to make disciples of all people. But if you really want to know what you believe, look at the way that you live. Because if you believe that your brake lines are good, you're going to use your brakes. If you believe that you have a gas leak in your kitchen and your kitchen is full of gas, you are not going to use your stove. It changes the way you live. If you say you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's done what he says he's done, do you live that way? Or do you just pay lip service and show up and warm a pew periodically? Walking in wisdom toward outsiders. Again, I also see this parallel to what Paul writes about for leaders. Throughout Colossians, we continue to see these requirements that Paul gives in First and Second Timothy and Titus for leaders of the church. He lives, get, lists those qualifications. What is interesting to me is we see many of these in Colossians, but they're just to the church. But it makes sense, right? If all Christians are to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, how much more should the leaders of the church be above reproach and be in good standing among the people and the community? Because that's one of the qualifications, that they be in good standing and that the people in the community speak well of them. If that's supposed to be a trait of all Christians, how much more for the people that are the spiritual leaders? Walking in wisdom enables us to make the most of every opportunity. And then he says, let your speech always be gracious. I'm reminded of the really tough words in verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. Not to be full of anger and wrath and slander and malice and lying and all of those things that he lists that tend to step on our toes. It is also interesting to note that in that sin list, the ones that Paul comes back to and covers a second time are the sins of speech. Always let your speech be gracious. N.T. Wright points this out because we could say, we could sit here for hours and say, well, what does that mean? Is it God's grace? Is it gracious in that we, we talk about God's grace or is it gracious in that we are kind and uplifting and encouraging? And, and really the answer is yes because in the Greek and the English both, that word has that double meaning of God's grace and human sensitivity or graciousness or kindness, gentleness. And we know that to be true because your wife asks you, how does this outfit look on me? And you know that your answer must both be gentle and the content. Your answer, the way that you say it, and the content of what you say both matter. It's not one or the other. You can't really nicely say, well, never mind. We know that you, it, it matters, both of those, the way that we say it and what we say. And it's the same thing here, I believe. And then he says, let it be seasoned with salt. My wife calls me a coffee schnob. And it's true, not as much so as it used to be. It used to be that if I wanted coffee, I would drive to 
Lafayette and buy beans that I would then come and grind and I'd have to go about once a month. But I started drinking too much coffee and I couldn't afford to do that. But the shop that I got the beans from, the guy that owned its name was Jerry. And Jerry said that he didn't really care for sugar in his coffee. When he did want sugar in his coffee, he used sugar in the raw. It was a natural sugar that had a little bit of a molasses flavor. But he said that sugar in your coffee is much like salt on a baked potato because without salt, a baked potato is pretty bland, right? But if you add a little bit of salt, it enhances the flavor. It brings the flavor out, and so you add a little bit of salt, and it tastes good. But he said that sugar and coffee is also that way in the sense that if you add too much, nobody's going to want to drink it, and it ruins it. And Paul says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. It needs to be palatable. It needs to be acceptable. Westboro Baptist Church may be speaking things that have truth in them, but it is not palatable. It may be true that the things that they are speaking against are things that God does not approve of, but it's not palatable, even to those of us that may agree with the general truth that they're trying to convey. But we can't even say that without getting a little sick to our stomach because they do it in such a way that isn't acceptable. There is no salt seasoning their speech. But at the same time, it's, it's possible for us as Christians to be over the top and to have too much salt on there. I've heard people say, well, they told me that Jesus was the answer, but I hadn't even asked the question yet. Or Jesus is the answer, but that doesn't put food on the table for my kids that are about to starve to death and haven't eaten for three days. We can be super spiritual in our answers and we can always point people, Jesus is the answer, Jesus is the answer. You just need Jesus in your life. And that may be true, but they don't care that they need Jesus when they're freezing and starving. That's why James says, it doesn't do any good to tell people I hope you have a good day, we wish you well, and not care for their needs. We can be over the top spiritually and just dump all that salt on and it completely ruins what we're trying to say because it shows that we don't care about the potato. All we care about is saying Jesus as many times as we can in that conversation. In fact, I remember... Uh, several years ago, I would say a few, but it's getting to be more the several mark. I, I was deaning a junior high camp at Hanging Rock, and Northwest Haiti was the mission, and Sam had come, Sam Williams, he used to be a minister here, for those of you that don't know, and, and he had come, he was working with Northwest at the time, and they were doing the Kids Against Hunger food packing. And he was trying to explain to the students why that was so important. And he said the reason he was excited about the food wasn't just because it was an opportunity to feed those people that were hungry. It was that, but it was because it gave them the ability to tell them about Jesus. You can walk up to a person that is on the brink of deathly starvation and tell them all day about Jesus, but as they watch you eat your Big Mac and drive away in your Mercedes, they don't really care. We 
We have to make sure that it's seasoned with salt and that we're actually walking in wisdom. Walking in wisdom would mean that we would say, hey, they might want something to eat. Maybe if I tried to actually care for the needs that they see, they would be willing and open to listen to the needs that they don't see but are really more important. It's not that we don't recognize that our spiritual needs are greater than our physical needs. But when there's no spiritual life, we don't understand that. And know how to answer. That carries the implication that uh, we would have a knowledge of what we believe. I, I think probably one of the things that I get frustrated with with the church and our culture is this lack of, or this abundance of anti-intellectualism. The abundance of, I don't need to study that. I don't need to know that. That's over my head. Just make it so I can understand it. Don't use big words. Don't stretch me. Don't challenge me. Don't cause me to grow. I mean, if you listen to people talk, there's an apprehension against people that teach that take people deeper. It's over my head. Sometimes the problem isn't that the teaching is too deep, it's that we're too shallow. Because if you are going to know how to answer people, you have to know what you believe. N.T. Wright also points out the answer that word answer implies that people are going to ask. I think that also comes in 1 Peter 3. Always be ready to explain the hope that you have. Think about it. If someone came up to you today and said, well, what is the hope that you have? Would you be able to explain that? Oh, but N.T. Wright goes on to say it implies the outsiders will ask Christians about their new lives as indeed they will if, verse 5, is being obeyed. Maybe none of us have ever had the opportunity to explain the hope that we have because we're not walking in wisdom towards outsiders, always letting our speech be gracious. Jesus-centered evangelism makes the most of every opportunity. And I believe that we cannot make the most of every opportunity if we do not steadfastly pray. We won't be aware and alert of the opportunities that are presented before us. I, countless times, I myself or I have talked to people that it, we're having those days where they're just kind of disconnected and you walk away and you realize, I just blew it. I had an opportunity, a door opened, but because of my lack of prayerfulness today or this week or this month or this decade, I blew it because I missed it. When we're steadfastly praying and looking for those opportunities, we see them. Also, if we're not steadfastly praying, we're not supporting our pastors and our missionaries in their efforts. This is going to be a little self-serving for a moment, but I don't really care because it's what Paul says. Paul, as a pastor, in verses 3 through 4, go back and look at those. Colossians 3 and 4. This is one of those times where I don't feel guilty being self-serving in what I'm about to say. But because I also know that 
in what Paul says, that self-servingness serves the church. He says, at the same time, pray for us that God may open us a door for the word and declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Paul instructs them to pray that the pastors and the missionaries that they know, pray for them, pray that the door would be open and pray that they would have clarity in their speech and that they would know what needs to be said and when it needs to be said. One commentator observed that Charles Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, famous preacher. I think that's his middle name. I may have said that wrong. But Charles Spurgeon, back in the day, he was asked about the success of his ministry. And you know what he said? He said, my people pray for me. And so the question I want to present is, are you quicker to pray for or complain about your pastors? Are you quicker to spend time on your knees praying that Brian and I would have opportunities to minister and that we would know how to minister? Are you quicker to complain about the way that we do that? Because if you're complaining and not praying, you're disobeying Scripture. And now you know what you ought to do. And James says if you know what you ought to do and you don't do it, it is a sin. Which do you do more of? Do you spend more time complaining or do you spend more time praying? Because honestly, if you're not obeying this, you're hurting the ministry and the mission of the church, of this congregation. Maybe that's a part of the problem. Maybe if you spent more time praying than complaining, you would have less to complain about. I can't help but imagine what would happen if we began to pray for others the way that Paul prays for this congregation. If we began to pray for the ministers and the missionaries that we knew and pray that God would open a door for them to minister and that he would give them the wisdom to say what needs to be said and the courage to do so. How would that change the role of the church and the effectiveness of the church if we prayed the way that Paul prays? Because that prayer in 9 through 12 that we've been looking at every week is what he prays for the church. And I can't help but believe that part of his instruction in pray steadfastly is that they would begin to pray for others the way that he prays for them. That they would begin to pick out other Christians and say, God, I pray that you would fill them with the knowledge of your will, with spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they can walk in a manner worthy of you and so that they can bear fruit and they can continue to grow in the knowledge of your will. Strengthen them so that they can endure all things with patience and joy. And may they always be thankful that you have qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints. If we began to pray for each other that way, what kind of growth would we see? Finally, we cannot make the most of every opportunity if we do not walk in wisdom toward outsiders. That's not finally, sorry. This is both in word and in deed. We must live and talk in a way that undergirds those prayers rather than undermines those prayers. Those prayers. 
Our actions and our words must support the prayers that we pray rather than undercutting them. It is useless for us. Often we get together and we pray that somebody would have safe travel as they leave on vacation. Or as missions trips get ready to leave, the church will gather around them and pray that they would have safe travel. Those prayers, while God can do miracles... And while God can, is in complete control, we understand that those prayers are fairly useless if the driver of the van gets on the interstate, puts the gas pedal all the way to the floor, closes their eyes, and lets go of the steering wheel. Our actions and our words need to support what we are praying. It is useless to pray for safe travel and then drive that way. Because there is no control over the car. And yes, Jesus may reach down and take the wheel like a horrible country song, but those are the really rare exceptions. Typically, we reap the consequences of the way that we live. We must live in a way that supports our prayers. And we need to know how to answer. If we're going to be answering people that are asking us about our faith and our hope and our love and our joy, we have to have faith, hope, love, and joy in our lives. But if we're going to answer them, we need to know. And I I still think that this idea of what to say and the answer to give and how we answer overlap. But if it's true that people will ask about your faith if you are walking in wisdom toward outsiders and being gracious in your speech... If that is true, when was the last time somebody asked you about your faith? When was the last time that somebody you spend time with could tell a difference in your life because of your faith and said, what makes you different? Why is it that you look out for the interest of others more than yourself? Why is it that you forgive people rather than holding a grudge? Recently, I became aware of a situation where a guy had a property line infringement. I would say it was fairly significant. There was some tree line ripped out. He, he asked the guy that was doing it, he said, hey, I, don't, I think you're coming over onto my property ripping out this tree line. That's going to cost quite a bit of money and you're taking value away from my property. I think you need to get a survey done before you do this because the survey I have says that this is the line, not where you're going to. And the guy said, I'm not paying for a survey. The person that was having their property line infringed is a Christian, and the person that was doing that claims to be a Christian. And the person that was being offended went and searched Scripture, and they came to 1 Corinthians 6. Where it says, wouldn't it be better for you to be taken advantage of than to sue your brothers and sisters in court? So he dropped it. And I have heard numerous people since then say, I can't believe he's doing that. That's money. I can't believe he's doing that. And the only answer is that he believes it's the right thing to do. But because of that decision to let his walk match what he says he believes, it's opening a door for people to say, what is different? Why is it that you're willing to let someone take advantage of you? 
And he says, it's because what God calls me to do. When was the last time somebody asked you about your faith because they could see that your life was different as a result? Because it doesn't matter how we try to answer if our lives don't match up with what we say. Jesus-centered evangelism makes the most of every opportunity. And if we are living in this way, making the most of every opportunity, being steadfast in prayer and walking in wisdom, we won't be those people who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyles. We will be those people who people look at and say, wow, there are people that still mess up and they still have sin, but they're not just living totally as hypocrites. They actually are changed by what they believe. And we'll see people come to know Christ because of our behavior rather than be pushed away. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your love for us. I thank you for your patience. I pray that you would give us the desire to pray, especially for those who are our Nineveh, those people that we would honestly rather see be punished than be forgiven. Maybe that's a parent or a step-parent or a brother or a sister or a child. Maybe it's another nation, another people group. Maybe it's ISIS. I pray that you would give us the strength and the desire to steadfastly pray that they would have the opportunity and the heart and the ears to come to know you. I pray that we would walk in a way that is pleasing to you, that we would walk in wisdom, especially when we're out in the world and around people that don't know you. May we not be people who acknowledge Jesus with our lips and walk out the door and deny him by our lifestyles. I pray that our lives would match what we say we believe and that we would be prepared to give an answer when people ask. May all of this be done for your glory so that more and more people can be there and join us in glorifying you when Christ returns. And it's in his name we pray, amen.